Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This episode contains language not suitable for little ears. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, March 24th, the Caregiving Crisis Edition. I'm Jamila Lemieux, a writer and contributor to Slate's Care and Feeding Parenting column, and mom to Naima, who's going to be nine in five days, five more days, and we live in Los Angeles, California. I'm Zach Rosen. I am a podcast maker. My other show is called The Best Advice Show. I live in Detroit with my family. My daughter Noah is four and Ami is one. And I'm Julie Kohler. I'm a writer, gender justice advocate, and the host of White Picket Fence Podcast. I'm also the mom to Benjamin, who's seven, and we live in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for joining us, Julie. Welcome to the show. We're definitely excited to have you here, especially for today's conversation. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you both. Today, we're going to start off with a question from a listener who's trying to navigate her new role as dad's girlfriend. She's really fond of his nine-year-old, but a recent incident has her wondering if there's a thin line between stepping in and overstepping. Then we'll be talking with Julie about the caregiving crisis. It's become pretty obvious in the past two years, if it wasn't already, that the U.S. doesn't have proper infrastructure in place to support parents at all. The reason why is fascinating and frustrating and something you'll want to stick around and hear more about. On Slate Plus, we're discussing the viral TikTok about raising boys as husbands in training. But before we get to all of that, we have a couple of quick listener emails that we wanted to share. The first is from mom of a Velcro kid. She wrote, Zach's advice to take a little token to school is spot on. With my daughter, I went to Michael's and got one of those ID holder lanyards. I printed out some small two by three pictures and put them in the photo holder so she could look at those when she was lonely. We'd also play a game of guess what teacher is there today on our way to school. My daughter bonded with one of the preschool teachers and that teacher would meet us at the door and like whisk her off to go do something, which is really lovely. Good luck to other parents. I've never found the true solution, but due to a change in circumstances, it's mostly better. We also got a more serious letter after our episode last week about the estranged dad. Hi there. I also have an estranged dad and children that he doesn't even know about. And I agree with most of your excellent advice to the letter writer about ensuring she makes the choices that's right for her with no expectations of any particular outcome. I hope the way that I've thought through this decision may be helpful. My father has mistreated me repeatedly on purpose with no remorse or acknowledgement that what he did was harmful. And the way I describe this to my children is that he hurt me on purpose and never felt sorry, so he doesn't get to be in our family. The way I think of it myself is that this is how I get my power back. And I take deep satisfaction in the fact that no matter how many challenges I've had to face because of what he did to me, he doesn't get to know his grandchildren. This approach became how I reconciled evil more generally. Abusers lose their chance at happiness and die alone. When it seems like bullies win, Trump, Putin, Hefner, etc., I see the truth that bullies lose because they have no love in their lives. And unless they figure out how to make deep amends, they will die alone. It's kind of a dark response to a dark problem. 
but I appreciate your respect of the experience of having to estrange from a harmful, remorseless parent and the mind games from childhood that persist well into parenthood. Thank you both so much for writing in. We absolutely love feedback here at Mom and Dad are Fighting. Um, if there's anyone out there who has advice or thoughts about this week's episode or any previous episode, we'd love to hear it. Our email is slate.com and we may even read your letter on the show. And I just want to mention the second letter mentions Hafner as a bully, meaning Hugh Hafner. And if you haven't had a chance to check out the Secrets of Playboy docuseries on A&E, it's really fascinating. And I was one of the commentators. So with that, uh, let's move on to some parenting stories from our week. We'll start with you, Zach. What's going on with you? I believe we're coming off of a fail last week from a tremendous triumph the week prior. So where are we now? Yes, I am keeping things balanced as I try to do. So I have a triumph this week. I celebrated my birthday this weekend. Happy belated birthday. Thank you. And all I wanted for my birthday was some solo time. My wife was out of town for part of the weekend on a girl's trip, which I was totally excited for her to go on. And, you know, kind of related to what we're going to be talking about today with childcare. Listeners, you might know that we have an embarrassment of grandparents living locally here in Detroit with us. So I feel so lucky that I could drop my kids off at my mom's house from Saturday afternoon to Sunday afternoon. And it was freaking luxurious. I went to the bookstore and just like read magazines and read some poetry and felt like I was in high school again when I could just like go to Barnes and Noble and no one was needing me to be anywhere else. I went to a concert and went and saw The Animal Collective, a very awesome psych pop band. I went by myself. Um, Some younger people came up to me and said, excuse me, sir, when they needed to get by and like I don't remember that happening before where I look around at a concert and (laughs) I'm like the old guy there. That was fascinating. Um, And I should get used to it because uh, when you go to these rock shows, I guess it's a a younger person's game. But then I woke up the next, I slept in. Oh my God, I slept in. Treated myself to some hummus for breakfast at this great hummus spot in Dearborn, Michigan. Um, And freaking just took my time with everything and it felt so good. I filled my cup back up and I'm just so grateful to have the family infrastructure to have made that a reality. Sounds like a really nice birthday, Zach. Congratulations and happy birthday. Thank you. Happy belated. Thank you. Julie, what about you? Do you have a triumph or fail? Yeah, I don't know if mine is a fail or a triumph. It might be some. It might be partially a fail that I'm trying to reframe as a triumph. We'll sure, see. But sure, it definitely sure. picks up on some of the themes that Zach was just mentioning. So I have a son who's an incredibly early riser. He has the strongest internal clock that you could possibly imagine and is up at six o'clock on the dot every morning, regardless, no matter what, no the switch to daylight savings time none of it matters. (laughs) And actually, we've gotten to six o'clock. The fact that we've gotten to six o'clock has been kind of a victory. It used to be more that he would come running in to my bedroom at about five or 5.30 and be like, good morning. So I've been really trying to reinforce that he needs to stay in bed until at least six. And, you know, then he can come into mommy's room and, and, and talk. And so that's been generally working. And so we've been, you know, he's been coming in between six and 6.30, which is still sometimes 
early. Um, but I've been really trying to focus on what happens when he comes in because I know it is one of these things that I will in a few years look back upon and really miss and yearn for. So he comes running in in the morning, he jumps in the bed, and he says, good morning, mommy. I am so happy to see you. And he said, you know, and we kind of go through this routine where he says, you know, did you have a good night's sleep? And I said, I did. Did you? And he goes, I did. You know, and so he is like every morning so amazed about that fact. And then, you know, he asks me, do you think I'm going to have a good day today? And I say, I really do think you're going to have a good day. And then we've gotten to, into this morning routine of um, I play Wordle on the iPad and he watches me and then he knows the word, but then he opens it up in a new tab and plays again and, you know, oh. and, and plays it himself. And so anyhow, we've kind of, you know, turned this this very early regimented wake up time into something of a kind of sweet, special routine. And um, so I'm trying to look at it as a triumph that we just, you know, he still really wants to spend that time with me first thing in the morning. I think, I think that's, that's a tremendous triumph. That's very sweet. Yeah. Happy mornings are a triumph. Totally. Happy child in the mornings, double triumph. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. When do you usually go to sleep, Julie? I'm usually kind of an 11 to 12 p.m. Is seven mm. hours enough for you? You know, I it just sort of is what it is. <laughs> so, yeah. so I think at some point in my life, I will sleep past six. And um, those yeah. days will be really nice when they come again. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Jamila? So, I have a triumph um, for once. Very excited about this. So we went to go see New Edition in concert on Sunday night. Amazing. The fact that all six members of New Edition are touring, I assure you, is the direct result of my daughter's thoughts and prayers. <laughs> she, as I've mentioned before, she has been obsessed is not the word and they're not the headline in our lives anymore the way that they were when she was three going on four and four going on five and but like new edition is a constant part of just our daily life and my daughter's just absolutely wild over these mid-50s <laughs> men and so um so this is the first time in uh in her life, I believe or, or maybe since she was an infant that they've toured with all six members including Bobby Brown Wow. So it's a big deal. Um, we go with a couple of friends of ours and we get good seats. And the last time I took her to a show where there was four of the members touring, I splurged and did a meet and greet. We thought about it this time. I was just like, there's just no way I'm spending that kind of money. I, I just, I can't justify it. It doesn't make sense. We're not doing it. We'll have nice seats. It'll be fine. It'll be a great show. It's cool. So Naima had, until that point, met all but one member of New Edition, Ralph Tresvant. She met <laughs> five of them. On a couple of different occasions, um, she'd met different members. And so this time around, we're uh, going to our seats and we run into Brooke Payne. He was, for many years, New Edition's manager. He was, if you watch the biopic, he was the guy who, like, turned them into a group and taught them how to dance and made them into superstars. So he's the Svengali behind New Edition in a lot of ways. And you recognized him? 
We recognized him. Uh-huh. Uh, wasn't our first time meeting him because the first time I, I took Naima actually to LA to meet New Edition uh, in 2017. We got to meet him then. And I recognized him immediately, even with, you know, masks on and stuff. And so I was like, hey, you know, my daughter and her friend, like, they just really love New Edition, particularly because of the movie. And they, you know, they recognize you and my daughter recognized them. And so they end up showing him some of their dance moves and they do the choreography free, the famous choreography from the If It Isn't Love video, which he choreographed and he's in the video. And so, like, they bust it out for him, which is really cool because, like, these are, you know... My daughter is almost nine. Uh, her friend's 11. Like, this video came out in 1988. Incredible. You know? And so <laughs> um, he was really touched by it. And he said, well, hey, well, let me get you some wristbands. You can come to the VIP lounge. The guys might come by, you know, at the end of the show. So we end up in the VIP lounge where Naima got to complete the sixth and met Ralph Tresvan. <laughs> As well as getting to meet Ricky Bell and Johnny Gill again. And she saw Bobby Brown and some of the other members from across the room. She got to meet a couple of other celebrities and just had the time of her life on a school night in the VIP. Just kicking it. Amazing. Just what a life. Wait, this is after the show? That you went? This was after, yeah, this uh-huh. was after the show. So we bumped into him before the show started. And he's like, I got wristbands, you know, for you. Like, yeah. come by, you know, after the show. And the guys might be there. You might be able to get to say hi. And she did. And they just had an absolute blast. She couldn't believe it. She got to meet one of her favorite early 2000s sitcom stars, Flex Alexander, who is A-list major big deal to her because of a show that came on when I was in high school. <laughs> what show? One on one, it aired on UPN. I wasn't a big fan of it, but my daughter loves it, <laughs> loves it, loves it, loves it. So, yeah, um, my daughter and her fifty-year-old celebs uh, showed us a good time. That Your daughter is, is fifty years old. My daughter is absolutely fifty years old. That's so cool. That's best case scenario. That's like super what dreams are made of. That's what every super fan hopes is going to happen when they go to a show. That's literally the dream. Oh like, oh, yeah, someone's going to discover me and I'm going to yep. get to go backstage and meet the group. Like in Turning Red, that was like a plot point. Like all the girls are like, we're going to meet the group. Like that's what happens when we go to our favorite uh, band's show. And it actually happened for Naima. I hope she doesn't take this for granted. I hope she realizes how completely unique and magical and crazy all of this is. Well, and Do how post- cool her mom is for being able to oh, orchestrate totally. that for her. That totally. is amazing. <laughs> Did you post so, about this on Instagram? I'm- I haven't yet. I'm going to post a couple of pictures. I haven't had a chance to. We were out late. It Like, the whole week has been thrown off. We ran into her teacher at the concert. And I was like, well, at least she knows why you're going to be late to school on Monday. Teacher didn't even make it to school on Monday. Oh, my no God. Shame. I understand, girl. We were out late. It was a long night. I was like, Naima, I don't think she's going to be there. Like, if you want to stay home, you were out really <laughs> late. It's okay. She was like, no, I have to go to school. I have to. My teacher's going to be disappointed if I don't go. And I was like, okay. Sure enough. <laughs> That's so funny. So special night. Uh, so look at us. Triumphs all around. That's always encouraging. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hopefully the rest of the show will be as successful. Let's just get into this listener question. Dear mom and dad, I've been in a happy, healthy, and loving relationship with the dad of a nine-year-old boy for nearly a year. He splits custody quite amicably with his ex-wife, and we waited until we knew things were serious to introduce me to his son, and we're quite careful and thoughtful about how that happened. Slowly and in low-stakes environments, where we can do activities he really enjoys. More recently, we've been getting together for a weekly dinner and game night. My son's boyfriend is a great kid, and I'm growing really fond of him as we continue to spend time together. He's incredibly bright and kind-hearted and quite funny. He's also a very sensitive kid, and sometimes I think his feelings are a bit bigger than he knows how to handle. Now, I'm not a parent, but I do know a little bit about being a kid with divorced and remarried parents. I often draw on my own experience to empathize with my boyfriend's son, and my boyfriend and I have talked about my experiences when it seems relevant and helpful. My own dad was far less careful and thoughtful in managing the introduction of various partners or step-parents into my life, and the result was a lot of uncertainty about my status in his life. I try very hard to use this experience to inform my perspective and remind myself that this child's needs and feelings are top priority. Recently, my boyfriend's son got upset and brought up something that happened several weeks ago. My boyfriend missed a detail in an email from his ex-wife and ended up missing a piano recital. My boyfriend felt awful about it when it happened and apologized to his son and talked to his ex to, about making sure information like that wouldn't be missed in the future. It's clear that my boyfriend's son has been holding on to some disappointment about this incident, and it seems like he might be doing some familiar to me, thinking about how his family is composed and the strength of those various relationships. I think my boyfriend handled it really well and lovingly, and it's been really great for me to watch him parent this great kid in a way that he deserves. And I want to be careful not to project my own childhood experiences onto this kid. But I also want to be someone who can contribute to his caretaking, especially when he has these big feelings. I found myself a little stumped as the tears started coming. I don't want to overstep or reassure this kid in ways that wouldn't be helpful. I guess what I'm really wondering is, what can I do as someone who hopes to stick around as a loving, trusted adult in this kid's life for the long term to establish some more reference points for understanding this kid and kids his age more generally? I'm not this child's parent, and he has really good ones. No one is rushing into things, but are there good resources out there for step-parent hopefuls? How can I learn to fill this potential role when there's nine years of catching up to do? Thanks for this great advice dad's girlfriend. All right, Julie, what do you think? Well, first of all, I just was really impressed with like how thoughtful both the woman who wrote the letter and her boyfriend so seem like they are being and kind of introducing her as a new, and I love that kind of t terminology of loving and trusted adult in his son's life. And so I think the fact that they are doing it in a way that's really low stakes, that really just sort of allow her to get to know her boyfriend's son and enjoy him as a person, I think is really sort of the best way to be introduced and, and just into a kid's life in a way that feels low stakes and feels comfortable and, you know, something that can really build into a more meaningful relationship. You know, there's this concept in sort of step-parenting um, relationships that, you know, that one of the techniques that you can kind of use as a step parent, or in this case, a potential step parent to be, is to kind of step up by stepping back. And mm -hmm. I think when, you know, about her question in response to her question about, you know, m meeting some of these big emotional needs, I think she really, you know, her instinct in equipping and supporting her boyfriend as 
the, her boyfriend's son's parent as the parent in that situation and helping him be equipped to meet those emotional needs. It sounds like he responded really well in this last, in the situation she specifically re referenced. Um, I think that's probably the best way and to really concentrate herself on just continuing to get to know her partner's son, to enjoy him, to kind of, you know, just have fun with him. Like it's such a, an, kind of rarefied position to just be able to kind of do the fun stuff and not have all of the responsibilities of parenting. And I would really say, take that time to enjoy it. The only other thing, you know, I started my career as actually a family sociologist and, um, you know, knew some of the research and researchers in this step parenting field. And there's some really good social science research on kind of what makes effective step families or blended families. How can we you know, bring new people into families in ways that are loving and supportive and respectful of boundaries and all of those things. And so if she wants some resources, um, two researchers named Larry Ganong and Marilyn Coleman have written really extensively on step family relationships over the years and might have some really good kind of concrete tips as their relationship progresses. Great. Yeah. The one thing that um, I was thinking about was it's great that all three parents, um, get along and just this notion of like the three of you constantly checking in seems to be a good idea so there aren't any um you know outsized expectations or you know if you're on the same page i think you're less likely to rouse or shock or upset the kid because you are all kind of parenting um as a unit rather than like you might have an agenda that's you know taking on kind of more emotional um responsibility than you know the the child's mom is comfortable with and and so just like letting each other know like what what your hopes and dreams and kind of boundaries are i think is gonna benefit this kid greatly um because if not they're going to be hearing it from from all ends and, you know, might feel caught in the middle, um, which, you know, I have a stepmom, um, and she was always pretty careful to not overstep. Um, and I think even saying like, I know I'm not your mom, but I think that's good. Like, I, you know, I think that's effective because you, the kid then knows, um, that you are aware of like, you know, your, your role. Um, I know I'm not, your mom, but I would love to get to know you, you know, and you can't make up these nine years. Like you said, there's a lot of catching up to do, like take your time because if you try to like get in all this bonding at once, that's going to be overwhelming and exhausting. And, um, just know that like, it sounds like you're in a great relationship then just like, you know, take your time and take it slow. I would co-sign all of that. Um, and I definitely want to reiterate what Julie said about, you know, the, greatest opportunity really you have here is by being a support system for your boyfriend, you know, that you can relate to what his son might be going through because you've, you're the structure of your own family. And so you can, you know, provide some feedback that he might not come to on his own, you know, or, or rather some necessary feedback and some information that he might not, that, that some things may not occur to him, you know, that you can point out because you've lived through something like this and, you know, and, and, and dealt with someone who wasn't as attentive to your feelings as um, you needed. I think also 
In terms of getting to know more broadly about children his age, you can read, you know, you can read up about child development. You can watch children's TV shows. You can talk to your friends who have kids. And, you know, hopefully you're doing some combination of all those things, you know, that like now that children or a child is in your life, the role of children in your life should be a little bit more substantial. So you're paying attention to the movies that are coming out and articles about parenting and things that might not have necessarily been under your radar before um, because you don't have a child. Uh, a book I thought looked kind of interesting. I'm, you know, kind of ambivalent about advice books, but, you know, I, I think that when there's something like this, where there's, you know, a lot of people have written manuals to, you know, for your exact situation of varying degrees of quality, of course, but, you know, I tend to like to go into a bookstore or to Amazon and just kind of look for an author whose voice sounds like mine, you mm. know, or that, that feels right to me. Like this is somebody who's speaking in a language that I find relatable, you know, and interesting. And, you know, um, it seems like they know what they're talking about. One that uh, jumped out for me that might be helpful for you is the single girl's guide to marrying a man, his kids and his ex-wife becoming mm. a stepmother with humor and grace. Now, hopefully you're not putting the cart all the way before the horse and you all have, you know, had some conversations about this being for the long term, which I had imagined, especially considering the intention in introducing you in the first place. But, you know, since it sounds like to you, your goal, whether you want to be legally married or not, is to, you know, perhaps be a step parent to this child. Um this might be an interesting read for you. It's available on Amazon and through other booksellers. And it's by Sally uh, Bjornsson, B-J-O-R-N-S-E-N. Where are you two at with the film Stepmom fans? I've never seen it. The, with Julia Roberts and Susan Sarandon and Ed Harris oh, from yeah. the, the late 90s. Oh, it's a, have I seen it? I remember it. It's very good. I mean, I, I remember crying in the theaters and i was in like eighth grade um oh wow it's pretty sad i mean because i don't want to spoil it but one of the parents dies but i think they they actually handle those t dynamics pretty um pretty tenderly from what i remember i wouldn't watch it with your kid but maybe just watch it for yourself if you haven't seen it yeah it's, i, I, it's I kind of vaguely vaguely remember the movie and i think you know i just i'm I think one of the critical things is just sort of have clarity on the role that you'll play. And, mm -hmm. you know, Zach, you referenced this earlier, but the more that kind of all parties agree, <laughs> I think the better. And so then it's, you know, even if this does turn into a formal step parenting role and you do sort of become more of an actual step parent to this child, it's really important that your partner reinforces that, you know, like I think, so whatever the role is going to be that you, there really has to be agreement among all parties and that everyone is kind of reinforcing what those boundaries and, and, and roles and responsibilities will be. Mm -hmm. Well, letter writer, thank you so much. We hope that this was helpful and please do send us an update. We'd love to hear how it goes. Uh, and if anyone else out there has a question for us, don't forget, you can always email it at momanddad@slate.com. So, Julie, while you're with us this week, we couldn't pass up the opportunity to talk about the child care crisis. Listeners, if you haven't yet heard season two of Julie's podcast, White Picket Fence, please do yourself a favor and cue it right up after this episode. Julie, when did you decide that this was something you wanted to cover and how did you take it on? Yeah, well, thanks so much. Um, several ways. Uh, so one is that this has been a 
area of professional concern really throughout my career. So I started my career as a family sociologist. I've worked in philanthropy and gender justice advocacy for the last several decades. And all of these policies about what we now call our caregiving economy, so childcare and paid family leave and similar policies that support families um, in caring for children and other relatives are really near and dear to my heart. And then, of course, we had a pandemic over the past two years, and I was thrust into a caregiving crisis of my own. I'm a single mom to my seven-year-old son, and so those days of lockdown, the kind of ensuing (laughs) challenges over the next year and a half where my son, who was in pre-K at the time that schools shut down and went virtual... Um, you know, then was in kindergarten and kind of either a virtual setting or a hybrid way. You know, I was cycling through, I think, five different childcare arrangements over the course of a year and a half. And so wow. it brought all of these issues that I've long been a professional passion of mine to kind of a new level of personal depth that I thought I really have to sort of help people make sense of this moment and be able to articulate a different path forward. Yeah, to that point, like every parent I know in some capacity has talked about the last couple of years as just being a shit show um, for a number of weeks, months, or or perhaps the whole time. Why are we as uh, the United States so far behind some other countries in how we handle childcare? Yeah, well, the U.S. is a little bit unique, and you know, I uh, oftentimes we hear in political commentary or the media about this concept of American exceptionalism. But when it comes to a care economy in this country, America is really exceptional in the worst possible way. We lag behind every other Western industrialized country in the world, and um, you know, are really are sort of unique in the ways that we make parents struggle. And so throughout the course of this season, what I wanted to unpack was this set of intersecting ideologies about gender, race, families, and the economy that have gotten us to a place where so many of us are struggling and really where so many of us were cracking during these last two years of, of the pandemic. And so we did a deep dive into, you know, kind of a family ideology, the way that a particular family form um, that was really at best a historical aberration, this concept of a two-parent nuclear family with a breadwinner father and a homemaker mother, not only was that like not actually the historical norm for most of most of American history, but it also hasn't really been available to all families throughout history, even though it really hasn't been the norm that some folks kind of try to make it seem like it was, it still gets evoked as an ideal that becomes the basis for a lot of our policymaking. And when you combine that with an economic worldview that's characterized by privatization and deregulation and, you know, sort of this belief in unfettered markets um, and that that produces freedom, the combination of those, these this kind of economic ideology that we go into called neoliberalism, this family ideology and the idealization of, of a family type that never really existed. And then you layer in racism and the devaluing in particular of the labor of that black women and other women of color have provided you really get into a situation where we have a crumbling 
private childcare marketplace that isn't working for families, that isn't working for childcare workers, and doesn't do a service to our children. And so if we want to see policy change, we really have to, I think, both be aware of the ideologies, start to unpack them, and push for the cultural change as well as the policy change that can get us to a different place. So something you break down really well in the show um, is that there is a tremendous amount of support for care economy policies in this country. Like the average American would want to see these things taking place, yet they're not passed. Um, For folks who haven't listened yet, can you talk about why that is and what are the policies that we should have? What does a care economy look like um, or a, a thriving care economy for American parents? You're the president, so you can decide. (laughs) <laughs> Great. That's, that's I have lots of things to what? do then. Yeah. <laughs> Got a big agenda. Well, this is the other kind of tragic thing is that over the course of the second season, we were recording this um, while the Build Back Better Act was being debated in Congress. And it was really two days before our final episode aired that Senator Joe Manchin announced that he would not be supporting the Build Back Better Act. And it's in the framework that it passed the House. And so essentially it, you know, killed the bill in the Senate um, and killed progress on this issue. And that bill actually, you know, it's not perfect, but it had a pretty powerful framework in place uh, for how to make things better. So it would have provided a historic $400 billion investment in our early care and education sector, providing public universal pre-K to all three and four-year-olds. It would have capped childcare costs at 7% of family income. Currently, most Middle-class families pay about 13% of their household income to childcare costs. For lower-income families, it can be as high as 35% of their household income. So it's really an untenable amount, an untenable expense for most families. And at the same time, and this is the sort of crazy part about how broken childcare is as a marketplace, you know, the average childcare worker is making about $12 an hour, um, which equates to about $24,000 a year. So you have a workforce that's really earning poverty wages and often not able to afford care for their own children. So all of those things, uh, a childcare sector that's thriving, paid leave for parents and family members that need to care for vulnerable or sick family members needs to be a component of a thriving care economy. And something that tragically we had in place last year, but has since expired, is an expanded child tax credit. The U.S. is one of a very few countries in the world that does not provide a child or family allowance and a monthly stipend to help offset the incredible costs of having children and raising children. And so if we could get all of those things back, if we could extend the expanded child tax credit, if we could have a paid leave program in this country that was universal and accessible to all, and if we could have um, real public investment in an early care and education sector, we could get to a different place. But Jamila, you know, you asked the point, like, why don't we have these things? Because when we poll on all of these issues, they are very popular. They're popular with Democrats, independents, and Republicans alike. So this, it's not a partisan issue when it comes to people in, you know, at large. I think there's been a growing recognition throughout the pandemic that this is also an economic crisis for our country, but it's also a democratic crisis. 
uh, a crisis of democracy. We are not, in this case, getting what we the people want. And I think a component of that is that our elected officials still, even though there have been gains made in recent years, do not reflect the diversity of all Americans. They, you know, elected officials remain whiter, more male, more affluent than, you know, most people in this country. And their everyday people's interests just are still not reflected. So I think it's really impossible to disentangle um, what we see political attention to uh, and sort of the who's performing this work. Um, caregiving remains disproportionately women's work and paid caregivers are disproportionately black women and other women of color. And, you know, too many elected officials haven't had to try to support a family on $12, $12 an hour or frankly struggled to find care for children or vulnerable or elderly family members. And I think the more that we have what we call a reflective democracy, where we have elected leadership that really reflects the constituents, the more we will see a changing in priorities and hopefully get the kind of policies and supports that are really viewed as common sense almost everywhere else in the world. You strike a kind of hopeful note toward the the end of the first episode of this season where there's this moment on the Senate floor where Senators Kirsten Gillibrand and Patty Murray corner Joe Manchin. Um, and you talk about this as kind of a unique moment in our in our politics. Why does that moment stick out to you? And, and what is what did that reflect? Yeah, well, there was a moment, and this was again when the Build Back Better Act was being debated and was heading to the Senate. And the president, President Biden, was in deep negotiations with Senator Joe Manchin about what would the framework for this bill look like. And they had just released the framework of the bill and paid leave had been dropped out. And so there would have been no paid leave in the Build Back Better Act. And Senators Kirsten Gillibrand and Patty Murray, like, went made this beeline, it was like on C-SPAN, went and made his beeline to Senator Joe Manchin to really sit down and talk with him about the importance of paid leave. And these are women senators that have been long-standing champions of many kind of caregiving, care economy policies, including paid leave. And they were able to help explain to him and, you know, kind of the importance of what this policy does and what it allows and how it would help even his own constituents in West Virginia. Paid leave did then get put back into the bill, not at an adequate level. It was, uh, there would, would have been four weeks of paid leave. The U.S. still would have been an incredible outlier in providing far less paid leave than is provided almost anywhere else in the, the country, but at least it was a starting point. Unfortunately, however, uh, that bill did not pass. And so um, what I am encouraged by and heartened by is that we do have champions uh, like the senators we mentioned. Uh, you know, Speaker Nancy Pelosi was instrumental in adding paid leave back into the, the framework. There are many, many elected officials, many of whom are women, um, who are really not accepting no as an answer. And so negotiations, at least on these components of the Build Back Better Act, are ongoing. I'm always so hardened anytime someone is a single mother in the parenting space in any way, shape, or form. Um, obviously, you have a very personal stake in the work that you're doing uh, with the podcast. 
Can you talk a little bit about that side of your own journey and what it means to have to engage with this really unfortunate picture of, you know, reality for so many parents and you're you're diving deep into it and surrounding yourself with it, but you're also connected to the material. Yeah, some days it really does feel very meta, I have to say. Like, you know, what you're experiencing on a day-to-day basis, you're also sort of trying to then make sense of and and, and talk about um, more publicly. There was a moment during the pandemic, and I think it was, you know, I was on my maybe third or fourth childcare arrangement, and my childcare provider at that time, her schedule changed, and she wasn't going to be able to uh, watch my son while he was doing virtual education. And I remember being in my bedroom and just breaking down, like losing it, saying, I cannot, like, I'm out of options. I don't have any more rabbits to pull out of a hat here. I, I don't know how I'm going to do this and still work full time. And my son came into my room and he saw me crying and he got really upset and he looked at me and he said, mommy, are you going to cry every day? Mm. And it was like, for sure, the lowest point for me. And I, at that moment, you know, I mean, I didn't really see a path forward. We, you know, I figured it out and we got to the other side, but I just thought, we cannot, you know, like that feeling of being so abandoned, so alone, so kind of like told it's on you and there's no sort of collective responsibility. I just felt sort of a renewed determination that we have got to get to the other side of things with some improvements, with a better system in place. You know, I think one of the things I wish people understood more about the childcare crisis is that this is a structural problem. This is not a moral failure. You know, we have not invested and built the structures we need for people to be successful um, in balancing their family and their work responsibilities. And I just think it's really important to let people know that, you know, as, as low as it feels, it's not your fault. And to encourage as many people as possible to really take collective action on this issue, to engage politically, because frankly, it's the only thing that's going to lead us to a place where we have better systems in place. And I do believe we can get there. Have you come across just anecdotally, like a model um, whether it's from another country or just like friends of friends who like s- just some some structure that folks have figured out that seems to be um, really effective that kind of works outside um, our kind of neoliberal uh, setup? Yeah. Well, it's actually most Western industrialized countries. I mean, again, you don't have to look pretty far. You can pretty much look anywhere <laughs> at how we can do this better than we do it in the U.S. Um it, so most countries provide paid leave to both parents at the t- you know at the time of a birth or adoption of a child so that parents can spend time with a new infant um, and really both heal uh, from childbirth and recover from childbirth and bond with a new baby. And then in most countries, there are child, as we mentioned, child allowances that help offset the costs. And there is publicly subsidized early care and education, um, both from helping find childcare for very young children and often, uh, 
universal pre-K for three and four-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Now, I should say I'm actually one of the beneficiaries. Uh, I live in Washington, D.C., and we have universal pre-K here. And so even when the pandemic hit, uh, my son was attending pre-K at our local public elementary school. So it is universal in D.C. Mm-hmm. It is free to parents. It is exceptionally high quality. So I have benefited from public investment at a local level in components of this caregiving economy. And there are other states and cities in America that have done the same thing, made comparable investments. And now our job is to really scale that and to ensure Mm -hmm. that it's available to all families, regardless of where we live, because this is not a problem just for blue states or red states. It's something that really unites all of us, rural communities, urban communities, suburban communities, you know, regardless of people's political orientations, we all need better systems in place to care for our family members, to we all give and receive care, and and to be able to balance those with our professional responsibilities. That was a very insightful, informative, and important conversation, Um, something that we are all struggling with in these parenting streets. So we appreciate Mm -hmm. you. Julie, where can folks listen to White Picket Fence? Anywhere that you listen to podcasts. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, take your pick. Before we get out of here, let's do some recommendations. And let's start with you, Julie. What are you recommending to our audience this week? Well, I think I'm behind the times here because, Jamila, I heard you reference this early in the earlier in the episode, but I just watched Turning Red with my son last weekend. And oh my God, do I love that movie. Like it was so wonderful on so many levels. And he loved it just because there's an adorable big red panda in it. It was a great vehicle for talking about big emotions emotions and how to manage those big emotions. And I love that as the mom of a boy, it also gives me the tools to talk to him, maybe a little bit down the line, this part kind of went over his head, but about puberty and about what women and girls go through as they enter adolescence, as well as what boys do. And I just, I can't say enough good things about that film. I loved it. I have to completely co-sign that. Uh, We absolutely loved it over here, too. Zach, what about you? I haven't seen it yet. I was busy watching Stepmom, but I'm going to get around (laughs) to watching it. Um, This week, I am going to do a food recommendation, as I like to do sometimes. Chili Onion Crunch. I got it from Trader Joe's. You can get it in the little, um, like, small jar. But it's, what is it, chili, garlic, onion sesame seed but it's just a great topping that can go on anything i had some leftover uh, annie's mac and cheese the other day that was pretty bland it was like the white cheddar one um and i added like a half a tablespoon of chili onion crunch and transformed it um to actually some really decent mac and cheese of course i use some of the pasta water in there too which is a uh, another recommendation but um i made minestrone last night put some chili onion crunch in there it's not too spicy but it adds this really lovely bite and texture to pretty much anything um it would be good in salad dressings i think i think like momofuko is responsible for this recent resurgence in um the popularity of the product but uh it's delicious i think it's it's a super old thing that is now just trendy and uh white people like me are just discovering it, but um, it's really good. Sounds good. I have to give that a try. 
Never go wrong at Trader Joe's. <laughs> I am recommending Spoiled Child S24 Rapid Recovery Hair Mask. I discovered this on Instagram. They know how to target me with those ads. <laughs> and oftentimes I put things in a basket and I leave before I actually check out. But this one kept showing up and my hair is a wreck because I color it. Uh, coloring my hair is the absolute worst. I look better with dark hair. My hair is healthier with dark hair. And yet every couple of years, I'm like, I should be blonde. And so I've been trying to get my hair back into shape. And um, I have to say, I've only used it twice so far, but my curl pattern just looks so much better uh, than it has in quite a while. Um, I'm liking it. I was just going to try to say something about curl patterns, but I got nothing. Got nothing. Um, I'm I'm just trying to picture what this is. It is a deep conditioner. Okay. Yeah. So hair mask is a fun term for deep conditioner. It's just conditioner that you leave in your hair. Uh, Usually they say leave it in for five minutes. I may have left it in for two days the first time (laughs) I used it because I was really trying to get it in there. Uh, But I like it. And it actually worked okay as a hair product. I was able to put my hair in a little messy bun and no one knew that I was actually wearing deep conditioner. Nice. Yeah. Instagram is scarily incredible at these targeted ads. They know, they know exactly what I want. Yeah. They know. They knew my hair was dry. So thank you, Instagram. <laughs> uh, you know me too well. That is it for our show. Before you go, please subscribe. Leave us a review on Apple or Spotify and or tell a friend. Also, if you rely on mom and dad or fighting for parenting advice or just a little company to keep you sane on the journey, consider signing up for Slate Plus. It's the best way to support the show. Members never hear an ad on our podcast or any other Slate podcast, and they get bonus content on this show and other Slate favorites such as Political Gab Fest, The Waves, and Slow Burn. To sign up now, go to slate.com slash mom and dad plus. Again, that's slate.com slash mom and dad plus. And one more time, if you have a question for us, email it at slate.com or post it to the Slate Parenting Facebook group, which you can find by just searching for Slate Parenting. This episode of Mom and Dad are Fighting is produced by Rosemary Belson. For Zach Rosen and Julie Kohler, I'm Jamila Lemieux. Thank you for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.